Welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. The author Tanana Rivdu wrote a haunted, terrifying horror novel where the people are much scarier than the ghosts. Her book, The Reformatory, is historical fiction about the infamous Dozier School for Boys in North Florida. Boys were sent to a brutal work camp in prison disguised as a reform school. They were whipped, some were killed, and many times they were buried out back in unmarked graves. That's a horror story that's hard to top. Except Tanana Reeves' great uncle was sent there, and he never came home. She wove fact and fiction together in the reformatory. A civil rights attorney is modeled after her dad, and a tough young woman who fights for her younger brother is modeled after her late mom. She added ghosts and the supernatural to the story, and that's how people know her work in the genre of black horror, like Octavia Butler and Jordan Peele. Tanana Reeve has been writing in that genre for more than 25 years. Her stories continue to captivate and terrify us, not because they're strange, but because they're familiar. She'll be at the Miami Book Fair Saturday and Sunday. We'll be there too. Come watch us tape a show before a live audience on Saturday at 1 p.m. We'll interview Carl Hyacin about his latest book, Wrecker. But right now, let's talk scary stories with Tanana Reeve Du. Tanana Reeve, welcome to the show. Exciting. Oh, it's so you great. You were doing a great job with my, my whole life story there. Well, it's so great because you're such a great storyteller. Like, I, I want to say that uh, our our producer, Lisa Baena, was on with you for like half an hour, and she's like, I could have talked to her for another, for another two hours, you know? <laughs> so that's how we know you're a great storyteller. So talk to me about this personal connection, because the Dozier School, you know, obviously it was, it was such a, an explosion um, when it hit kind of the news of what had been discovered there. But when you discovered your personal family connection to this horror story, Talk to me about that, yeah. that, that kind of a realization. Well, it, it happened completely unexpectedly. I uh, had just lost my mother in late 2012. And in early 2013, our family heard from the Florida State Attorney General's office. Actually, it was a gentleman in Pam Bondi's office who called to let us know that mom might have had an uncle named Robert Stevens who was buried on the grounds of the Dozier School for Boys in Mariana, Florida. Now, at the time, I had never heard of the Dozier School. There were a lot of news stories out, and there were even memoirs out, but I had not heard about the story yet or this facility. And let me tell you, when my dad and I made that first visit there, because uh, Aaron Kimmerly from the University of South Florida had set up a meeting with survivors, black and white. It was a segregated facility, so children were kept separately, especially through the Jim Crow era, but they suffered um, the same fate very often. Maybe the, the black students were treated worse. Maybe more of them died, as a matter of fact. Mm. But a lot of the, the white survivors also remember these horrible beatings and what they called the fun house. I mean, right. I'm sorry, the white house. The white house. You call it the I fun house the in fun your book. House in my book, I changed the name to the fun house to make it even more sinister and as I, once I heard these testimonies from the old men mm -hmm. now who had suffered at the Dozier School and were still living in that experience so many years later, one man was there on behalf of his brother who had never come home, I think in, in the 40s or so. And, wow. And his mother had just died heartbroken. So right, because it's a, the, it's a story of these yeah. kids that, that sometimes went missing. And you would, if you were lucky, you might get a note saying, uh, uh, your boy ran away. 
and uh, right. we've not found him. You know, it ran away. It was uh, It seemed like it was an open secret, especially if you were black in that community, that if you're if you're son disappeared it's that they had disappeared him well from what i understand um you know this place had been fraught with complaints since it opened its doors uh, almost like since 1900 and they only shut it down in 2011 crazy so there were complaints that young children were being shackled uh hogtied uh they, they had um, a box where it was almost like an underground facility, almost like what you would see done to prisoners of war, actually, oh. the, the way they punish these kids. And from what I understand, flogging had even been outlawed for adult prisoners, but it was still going on at this reformatory for children, which is ironic. So, yeah, you might get a letter saying, hey, your son died and we buried him, uh, because sometimes the children had to actually dig the graves for other children who were at the facility. The stories are absolutely harrowing. And at first I thought, well, I want to, I want to write about this. I want to engage with this, but I wasn't sure how at first I had written a a nonfiction memoir with my mother before she passed away called freedom in the family. But it really didn't feel like this was my lane because I wasn't a survivor. I wasn't, related to a survivor I could interview mm-hmm. and talk about his true life experiences. And since he died in 1937, by the way, I, I was never able to talk to anyone who had known him. So given that, I said, I'm a novelist. Let me use the realm of fiction, and I will tell, I will honor his name, the name of Robert Stevens, but I will create him as a composite child who has been sent to this reformatory. And I, I added ghosts not just because I'm a horror writer and because they're fun uh, and because this facility cried out for a haunting. In fact, I heard from Erin Kimmerly that she had heard stories that, that people thought it was haunted, but this was years after I started the book. She finally told me that. And I'm like, well, of course it is. (laughs) If any place would be haunted, (laughs) of course this place would be haunted. Right. But I really added the ghost because I was having such a hard time reading the true life accounts of people who had been through that facility that I I couldn't see writing that. Reality is so much more harrowing and horrifying than fiction. So by adding ghosts, I'm actually softening the story because at least if it's a ghost, it means it was a death that happened before. It was a death that happened in some cases long ago. So rather than having to read page after page after page, of children being killed or children being hurt. And there is some of that. So content warning, I I would have been dishonest, I thought, not to at least show glimpses of the violence that was present at that facility purportedly by by survivors and, and from the research. But I could soften it through the prism of ghosts and make it more of a story about a child who has tremendous powers of adaptability, Mm. Robert Stevens. He's 12. He has that. I made him 12 instead of 15. The real life Robert Stevens was 15 when he died. I I made him 15. I mean, I made him 12 because I wanted to tap in to that childlike spirit and that innocence, because this is really kind of a coming of age and loss of innocence story, Mm -hmm. obviously. I mean, the world is not what you thought it was. Right. Dragnet, which he listened to on the radio, which was sort of the godfather of the procedural in many ways. There were others before Dragnet, but Dragnet was the one that really caught hold of the American psyche and in some ways has been imitated ever since. <laughs> um, 
that was a lie because Joe Friday in Dragnet wouldn't have taken him to this reformatory. He wasn't a criminal like the criminals Joe Friday caught on TV. So I wanted to sort of have a child experience uh, this disillusionment. But also a child has the adaptability to be like, oh, there's ghosts. You know, um, and yes, they're scary at first until you realize that the true monsters are human. It is it is interesting that you use this that you use the supernatural to put us in a different realm. Like, oh, if we can if you can remove us from the immediate horror of this, then we can read more about we can read we can read more of the story. And and I'm I mean I'm curious how you put yourself into it. In other words, how how you put yourself into that place to be able to write that. And write in a way that wasn't um, that didn't cripple you, you know, that you could actually create and find. Because ultimately, you're writing in there. It's got to come from a place of passion and joy, uh, and not necessarily one of, of you know, of, of punishment, uh, to self self flagellation. How did you put yourself sure. in a place? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm I'm glad you put it that way. And some of the feedback I've gotten from readers um, is that it's a glimpse of hell, but also a glimpse of hope. Mm. And that's very meaningful me because that was what I needed. I needed to feel a sense of hope while I was writing it. It's one of the reasons I wanted to fictionalize it, to give Robert a different ending. I, I didn't like what happened in real life. I oh, I love that. Spoil it, but it, it's a different ending, right? And to, to, to show uh, how people, even under the duress and the, really the terrorism of Jim Crow, because the other part of the reformatory is not just what's happening inside the reformatory, which has paint and a psychopathic warden and this history but outside of the reformatory his sister gloria in some ways was my access to the story to answer your question she was based very much on my mother so i i, I could ask myself what what would mom have done in this situation even in 1950 i mean that's why she was a civil rights activist even in high school she started agitating you know for and- a better principle and what were, you, what were you going to say? I was, and how beautiful that I know you lost your mother some years back, but that you could bring her into you, and she was she's with you as you write, because this character is the she's. I mean, as much as there is uh, that that freedom fighting attorney that we meet, um, who's named after your dad, uh, like those two characters that seem like they were kind of heroes in your li- your own life, and you were able to write with them as you're telling this very difficult story. I also love the way you put that, you know, just as Robert feels that the ghost of his mother is walking with him Mm -hmm. when he's at the reformatory. I very much felt my mother's spirit walking with me while I was writing it. Maybe that's what gave me the strength to face the research and face the reality because people like her did exist. Even though 1950 was a little early in her timeline, she would have been younger than Gloria. But my mother's name was Patricia Gloria. Stevens Dew. So I literally named her after my mom. My dad is John Dorsey Dew Jr. And he's still living at 89 years old. Uh, Yeah, you posted you posted an amazing picture of him holding a galley of the book. I mean, I mean, he's obviously gotten to see your work over the, you know, over the decades, you know, really see you blossom into the um, the fullness of your writing career. But what was was did it feel more personal with a book that he had a hand in and, you know, not just his name, but he also had a hand in talking to you, right, about building some of those courtroom scenes. It absolutely did feel more personal. It started with the fact that we were both grieving for my mother. And Mm. I think in an unspoken way, both of us felt like we could help bring some kind of healing and closure to that story 
if we learned more about what had happened at the Dozier School. I don't think she ever knew about her uncle, Robert Stevens. I think it was one of those secrets that, one of those secret traumas that so many families carry with them Mm. through the generations. And my parents were the complete opposite. They were always telling me their stories. So I'd had a chance to work with my mother on her memoir of her civil rights activities, which is where I learned a lot about what it was like in 1950s Florida. And that's why I wanted to set it in the 50s. But with dad, it really was more of a hands-on thing. You know, I was a lot closer to my mom than my dad growing up. He was often at meetings. He was a community organizer, worked for the community relations board. So really, in some ways, the whole county was his family, it felt at times, which I allude to sort of in that activist mindset uh, in in the book. You know, it takes you out of the home. And it was so fascinating after my mother passed away, how much closer we grew. First, I was living in Atlanta, and he was also living part-time in Atlanta. But these trips we took, every time I went to see him at their house in Quincy, Florida, we would drive to Mariana, either for a meeting or just to drive and experience it or to interview the former black mayor of Mariana, Florida, Elmore Bryant, who who had also worked at the reformatory. This was a place where a lot of people worked, by the way. It was just a staple of the town. It was, it was, you know, maybe there were whispers of the stories, but for the most part, it was considered a good job, you know, and a lot of people went through there. And it's the sacred cow that nobody wants to necessarily, or not nobody, but the, the folks who see the money come in don't necessarily want to disrupt or ask too many questions about. Yeah, it was the sacred cow, and it was, especially if he said a novel in 1950, hmm. it was during a time when it would have been very, very hard to advocate for a black child who's locked up in this place. And that was the dilemma I faced. You know, I wanted to create a scene to show that Gloria, like my mother, was doing everything in her power, like even beyond her power, to try to free her brother. So she, she it's not spoilery to say that she creates this sort of superhuman possibility because she finds an NAACP legal defense fund lawyer uh, who's in town and actually convinces him to come to this my fictitious town, which is called Gracetown, and talk to the judge, and the judge is actually in his chambers, and the judge has actually agreed to see them. All these things are lining up, so t- and I was so excited. And then I thought, but what do you say? <laughs> because in 1950, the laws are very unfair. Segregation was the law, um, and also the laws are not applied equally in 1950, just as, frankly, they aren't applied equally today. So what do you have to stand on? And that was when my dad was able to draw on his civil rights experiences in the 1960s about you know, 10, 15 years after my novel actually takes place, where you had to create rapport with the judge. Mm. You had to help him see you man to man. You used humor. My dad has still, at 89, a great sense of humor. That's his superpower. And I wanted to try to capture that in the novel as well. He's using his humor. He's using his intelligence. He's using logic. And one of the key things he said to me was, these are racist judges but they don't know they're racist. Oh, and there's a line that you use almost word for word. That exactly. line is almost word for word in the book. And it yeah. just it, it shows me that like I can just picture you on the road from Atlanta to Mariana to where the, to this this real life town and kind of getting close to your dad as he just tells you stories about his own life as you're building this. What a, what a gift what a gift that must have been for you. It 
really has been a gift. And the reason you saw me posting uh, photos of my dad with the galley on Instagram, and even before the galley, like in 2022, I printed out the copy of the book and put the cover on the front because I already had the cover. And on the back, I put a photo of us because as the book kept getting delayed, (laughs) it was supposed to come out last year and then it was going to come out earlier this year. And then they thought, let's give it more time to let people know about it. And and I think that paid off. But every time they delayed it, I was so worried that my father wouldn't live to see the publication of the book. He's in his 80s, you know. He was in his 80s while we were working on it, much less now. He's almost 90 years old. But he has, and for his birthday, which was October 22nd, I mailed him the hardcover with an inscription saying, now no one will ever forget the name of Robert Stevens. Oof, amazing. You know, this this book um, came out, you know, it's obviously built around around this idea of this Dozier school that existed. And that seemed to be kind of like an earthquake, right, when the discovery of, of the, you know, the actual facts behind it. I'm thinking of, and the things that it sparked. So I'm thinking of a book like Nickel Boys uh, by Colson Whitehead. Um, and I'm curious how the success of that book affected the writing of years because I'm thinking the, the, the part, obviously the genres are different but there is that personal connection right that you have to it that that separates it but I'm curious like that book came out as you're writing this one and I'm I'm wondering how that affected your writing of it well let me just keep it real I don't think any writer <laughs> would like to hear that they're one of their favorite off Pulitzer Prize winning authors is about to publish a novel set at the exact same fictionalized uh, reformatory as the one you're writing. It was that initially, I was, you know, initially I tweeted the announcement of his next book without reading the article, which they say never do. Oh, no. (laughs) And then a a friend of mine was like, "Uh, did you see what his book is about? And I was, I was, to be perfectly candid, I was devastated. Oh. Because at the time, I thought that there wouldn't be any room left. For my story, there wouldn't be any room left for my book. It's not that I, I mean, there had been tons of memoirs about the Dozier School, so I didn't have any illusions that I would be the first person to write about it. But I didn't know of anyone else who was fictionalizing it. And of such a high caliber author, it, it really was a frightening moment. But my agent encouraged me to keep writing. Colson Whitehead and I followed each other on Twitter, and I, I I said, well, I just hope it's not a ghost story. <laughs> I might have said it in a cheerful way. But I honestly, if he, because Underground Railroad, his previous book, had been Magical Realism. Has Magical, right, it, right. It, he, you would it, put him in the realm of, of, yeah, yeah. That book was in the realm of, of Afrofuturism, kind of, you could say. Right, yeah. absolutely. So if he had done that with the Nickel Boys, too, I honestly might not have kept working on it. I'm really glad I did, because even a short time later, it seems that there is room for both of those stories. and But I have to admit, to this day, I tried to pick up the Nickel Boys, which my dad has in his room, and I read the first page, and I saw a reference to Boot Hill, and I couldn't go on because at the time I was still, I think my, maybe I had just sold the reformatory, but it was like more than a year ago, and, and, and I, I, I couldn't quite make myself start reading it yet. Right. But I know I will one day. And Boot, Boot Hill. It felt so personal. That's yeah. where my uncle was. was uh, my great uncle was at Boot Hill, you know? Yeah, Boot Hill was, was the, the basically what they called the, the, was that the cemetery where they buried the boys? Yeah. Yeah. And, and we both used that name, Boot Hill, in our in our book. And, and I find that, obviously, uh, with the question whether there was room for it, uh, the question has been answered because the book, <laughs> I, I think, is... I think is a, is a runaway success because the book, it adds a different element. There's an element to, to Colson Whitehead's book um, where there is, uh, I'm, I'm going to sp- not spoil it for you, but 
okay. He avoid he avoids um like the specific explicit moments and kind of like the monster not seen, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But you took mm-hmm. a different tack. You were like you really put us in the room of a boy being hit with a whip and seeing being in the room where there is blood spatter on the walls and talk to me about that decision of really like especially yes the genre but also your your instinct right to tell from that point of view to be explicit i think it's because of that first meeting and how impacted i was by hearing those men talk about what had happened to them when they were children particularly the man who said he couldn't even see his parents on visiting day because he'd had that beating and he was in the infirmary and the doctors had to remove the fabric from the lashes on his back. Oh, my God. And I think that left such an impression because I didn't know if I would feel honest in telling the story if there wasn't at least the White House, which I called the Fun House, because and I, I to me, that's what's on the cover of the book, although it could also be the church. Which, interestingly enough, they can almost be interchangeable. (laughs) One is a whipping shed. One is a church where people sort of go, I guess, to sort of hide from themselves Mm. the monstrosity that is happening right around them. Um, But in any case, it was difficult. You know, I I published an excerpt. I published that scene as an excerpt in the Boston Review several years ago. I want to say 2017. I'll look it up. But uh, in any case, that was, I called it the Reformatory. And at the time, I named the character Walter Stevens after my uncle, who was still living at that time, sort of mm. to honor him. Mm-hmm. But all along, I knew that for the the final book, I was going to honor the, the actual name of Robert Stevens. But, oh, it was 2018, I published a short story. And one time I tried to read it at a public reading, and I said, never again. Because even though I tried to gentle it down, mm. and I don't want to discourage readers, uh, but it, it was a difficult moment to write up two but once but it's it's such a key moment and the reason i wanted to read it out loud was because it's the moment when robert realizes that the ghosts he's so afraid of are real but at the same time they're not his biggest problem but even beyond that that they are a representative or symbol of the idea that there is more than this there's more than what we understand that there's i think that's just important for all of us to remember in moments of struggle and trauma that this is not everything there is more than this and and because of that juxtaposition of the horrific violence i mean that he not just experiences but witnesses like the blood on the wall isn't his right it just but but again this is from survivor testimony you know and and i tried to be as true to life as some things are changed it is fiction and i go to great lengths to explain it's fiction i'm not saying that there was any psychopath who was the warden or superintendent of this facility there's no one person i don't think who can be blamed yeah there's not one well, there's not one on. boogeyman uh, it's kind of like we we society are the boogeyman i want to yeah, we are yeah. the boogeyman yeah i want to talk to you more about that but more about your connection to South Florida, because you have a strong connection here, as did uh, your parents and your father. Um, but first, we're going to take a little break. Our guest today is Tanana Reeve Du. She's a novelist who writes in the genre of black horror, and she'll be presenting two books at the Miami Book Fair this weekend, including her latest, The Reformatory. 
So Tanana Reed, talk to me a little bit about uh, growing up in or being in South Florida. Your dad, John Dorsey, do um, like I said, he was in the Civil Rights Hall of Fame uh, for the work he did here in South Florida. Um, talk to me about what your I like how civil rights were talked about in your home. <laughs> well, there's a reason I named my memoir "Freedom in the Family." Hmm. Um, it was, I mean, everything in our home. Uh, the stories about the '60s, listening to old broadcasts, and we had a set of LPs called "I Can Hear It Now: The '60s," narrated by Walter Cronkite, which had all these huge stories from my my parents' histories that that really made them come to life. They had Black History comic books all over the house. Before there was a Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, every January 15th, my sisters and I got the day off from school, and we would go to the Torch of Friendship um, down on uh, Biscayne Bay and uh, meet with other allies. I mean, because my parents' activist friends were black and white, and that's why you see black and white characters also in the reformatory, even though there are limitations to allyship. There were people uh, through every era who were good-hearted, and some of those people actually took action. <laughs> you know, so we would meet and sing "We Shall Overcome" and talk about what Dr. King meant to us. Is that a day? And, is that a day off from school that your parents said you're taking the day off, or you had that day off, at, like from no, the they, state? They let us have the day off from school. It was like a religious holiday in our house, even before it became a national holiday. I love that. And in fact, when I when I was in high school, I actually spoke before the school board to advocate for the 15th being the actual official day that his birthday was celebrated rather than whatever Monday happened to uh, follow the weekend. Wow. Uh, that didn't work out, but that's how that's how deeply we held it. But at the same time, my mother also wanted us to understand that, that it wasn't all about Dr. King, which is why she wanted to write her book. Mm. And my father and my mother were sort of living that in practice. So as the head of the Community Relations Board, when... Um, there was an insurrection in Miami after the death of Arthur McDuffie by the hands of police in 1980. Mm. He was out working on the streets, trying to keep calm, and our phone would ring uh, other times. Your dad ran into that. He ran into those, into the protests and surrounding the, to kind of, to he, try to maintain a, like you said, cool, cool try heads. Try to maintain calm, and it, that was my first Black Lives Matter moment, actually. Wow. And it was an wow. important moment for me. I was, I was about 14, because it helped me, well, first of all, I realized, we didn't call it Black Lives Matter then, but I realized that those civil rights battles that my parents were always talking about, those Jim Crow signs they were always talking about, were not actually gone they were just underground, and they were taking a different form. And that was a, a huge eye-opening moment for me. Wow. And it was also the moment when I wrote a prose poem called I Want to Live, which was a utopian poem about the society I wanted to live in, literally to try to drown out the noise of what was happening. Um, we, I went to a triethnic junior high school, Cutler Ridge Middle School. It was then junior high. And they were playing Muzak because I guess they thought we would just explode <laughs> if we weren't listening to Barbara Streisand or whatever we were listening to. Um, <laughs> the the, the music of protest, I, Barbara Streisand. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was just to keep us calm and keep us quiet. And I had such a burning feeling in my chest, the frustration of, of oh, my gosh, black people don't get justice. I, I couldn't even wrap my mind around it. It was so obvious. They had even tried to cover it up, and the jury still let everybody go. Um, so I wrote this post poem, and I immediately felt better. And my mother told me that day, you're so lucky you have writing, because, you know, you, you have a place for those emotions to go. Wow. And 
that was, I'd always known I loved writing, but that was the first time I understood that writing might literally save my life. That wow. this was an outlet, that this was an expression. And I performed it in like speech and debate tournaments and that kind of thing. Oh, so it really so, yeah, became, my, it really became the, your first, your, your, your debut, so to speak, as, um, as a writer, as a, a expressing an artistic vision. And you did it in multi, in a multimedia way. Sort of, I took it all the way to the national competitions for uh, the NAACP had a competition called AXO, the Afro-Academic, Cultural, Technological, and Scientific Olympics. Wow. I think it's still there. Um, one kid had a bionic arm from the Miami team. It was like, wow, great. But anyway, that was also an offshoot of the activism because my parents obviously were members of the NAACP and my father was a president of a branch of the NAACP. So it was just the air we breathed. And that was part of what I wanted to convey, actually, in the reformatory, even though it's a pre, deliberately pre-civil rights. And it's five years before Emmett Till. It's 10 years before the uh, sit-ins would begin mm-hmm. in Greensboro, and before my mother and my aunt Priscilla Stevens-Krause would be arrested, along with other Florida A&M students, for trying to desegregate a lunch counter, the horrible crime of sitting at a lunch counter. Wow. But there's this hope, there's this, you can. There's this feeling in the air of the change that we all know will be coming, no matter how cosmetic it is. In some ways, there is actual, real, significant change that happened in the '60s, and Gloria and her brother are two of those people, and their father, frankly, are, are those people who are going to help bring about that change. That's kind of the spirit I wanted to imbue in it, and you can see how activism works. You know, the the telephone trees, like people calling warnings to each other, uh, looking out for each other. The original uh, social media, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the original social media. People like Harry T. Moore, who was martyred. He and his wife Harriet were murdered, uh, bombed by the Ku Klux Klan, I think on Christmas Day, not long after the events in the reformatory. And Robert can, uh, Gloria can sense that that's about to happen. Right. When she meets these figures like Harry T. Moore, she can sort of sense their futures as her gift. Robert has the gift of seeing Hank, and Gloria has a somewhat unreliable gift of prophesying the future. Like, she can meet someone, and sometimes she'll get an impression about that person, uh, about what their future will be. So I wanted to set it in a time, free civil rights, where you can see that people did fight back. You know, I think so often when these earlier periods uh, during Jim Crow are depicted, including in the film Mississippi Burning. It's mm-hmm. like the black people are just sort of sitting around waiting for people to save them. And that's not the case. There were communities that protected themselves. Right. There were, there were people who were brave enough to stand up and fight back. Uh, sometimes it had disastrous results. I wonder but if this, those people have always existed. This strong background in, in activism and in, and in telling the world showing the world how things really are. Is that kind of what steered you into the into journalism? Because you, you were at the Miami Herald for many years. I Well, not exactly. I will say this. Even though my parents were very supportive of my plans to be a writer, their whole thing was you need to get a degree mm-hmm. and a career where you can have some stable job prospects. <laughs> <laughs> and that'll show you how long ago that was. Because journalism was considered a stable job prospect. Yeah, I remember those uh, but days. But that's what I did. I went to the Medill School of Journalism in Northwestern and uh, spent a year overseas at the University of Leeds as a Rotary Foundation scholar, completely off the beaten track. But I came back right away and started working in the Miami Herald after having been um, an intern. And just one note, that Arthur McDuffie case from 1980 was the reason 
I first became a high school intern at the Miami Herald, like the former editor-in-chief of the Miami Herald, Aminda Marquez Gonzalez, was also a high school intern because we were brought in. They didn't have reporters to cover it, and it was a long view. It was like so many people would come to Miami from other places, Detroit, Chicago. It, it, you know, Miami is its own thing. Like, you, you, not everyone's going to like it and fit in. So they thought if we can find homegrown journalists, like groom them from the time, I hate to use that word now, but if you groom them from the time they're in high school and then they come back to work, it will help improve the coverage. And that was the plan. And I think it did work. And I was there for 10 years, although um, I did not have a nose for news. I I really, much for the same reasons, it was so hard to, to research the reformatory. I didn't enjoy meeting people on their worst days. After the worst tragedy, which you do as a journalist. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh! It was, you know, one day there was a principal who had been murdered by her uh, husband, Hmm. and I was sent out from the city desk to go get a comment. Just the worst. And I remember standing in the rain with this man, and he didn't speak English. His son had to translate, and I was asking whatever question. You know, what do you say? Your daughter was just shot. And, and the boy said, my father says, please don't bring us any more pain. And if I had had that real journalist spirit, I could have gone in for the kill, you know, for the quote. Because you, you say, I know, sir, you must be very upset. I won't keep you any longer. And they find a way. And there's a re- former reporter for the Miami News named Patricia Gaines who had a gift for, I mean, creating therapy out of those moments. But I didn't have it. Mm. I didn't have it. He wasn't looking for therapy. I just said, so sorry to bother you, and walked away and told my editor I couldn't get the quote. Um, and I knew that day that I, I couldn't do news. <laughs> it was not for me. So, so t- I made my way over to the features desk as fast as I could. And then ironically, for all the stories I had written about education and Overtown and Liberty City as a neighborhood reporter, I ended up with best known for having a dating column. I mean, I think that's the thing people remember the most. It had my picture. People still remember you for that, that syndicated <laughs> column that you started at the Herald. It was sex in the city in a different city. It was down here. I mean, I wish. I wish it had been. You know, I wish I had monetized it better. But, <laughs> but it was running all over. It was running all over the wires. And a lot of people in a lot of different cities were reading it. And I will say this. Um, it helped me prepare to meet my soulmate because it was like therapy for me. Every week I would write about some disastrous thing, office romance, uh, whatever it is, uh, dating a friend, you know, all those things, talk to a couple therapists, talk to people who'd had that experience and that was my column and I was actually giving myself therapy. You were <laughs> so, giving yourself the best advice because you did, you met you met your your, uh, your lifelong partner and you guys, you guys even, you guys write together also, right? We do. I've been married to Stephen Barnes now for 25 years. I can hardly believe that. And we collaborate uh, from time to time on short stories. Mm. And we've collaborated on novels, like Tennis and Hardwick mystery series we did with Blair Underwood, a couple of young adult zombie novels. But the biggest fruit born from that has been our television collaboration. Steve had credits long before I met him. He was writing for The Twilight Zone and Outer Limits in the 80s. But... uh, since we've been together, we together wrote a script for Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone. We've written a couple scripts for uh, an anthology movie called Horror Noir, which is on Shudder and AMC+. And we're continuing to uh, collaborate on pilots and pitches. Well, give, give us some dating advice. Give us some, some life advice from 25 <laughs> years 
after a successful match? What 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 works? What what keeps a couple who then also collaborate workwise together? What what makes it work? Funny you ask that. We actually have an <laughs> online course called SoulmateProcess.com because what we realized is that we both went through a very similar path before we met each other to prepare to meet. And had I not done that, I would not have recognized him for who he was. So honestly, and this is not a cop-out, it starts with the mirror. And I hated it when people used to say to me, oh, when you're not looking, you're going to meet someone. But I was living my best life when I met Steve. You know, I, I had gotten beyond the phase where I was pining, like, oh, where is he? I had just written my first book. I was out on tour. I, and that was what a psychic had told me, that when you become who you're supposed to become. A psychic. And that's when you'll meet him. I mean, I know. You were really good. You were trying. You were, you were doing the most. <laughs> I did. I even thought, if she was not like, it's not like she had a shingle out. You know, she was someone, a friend of mine on the Herald staff interviewed, and the woman just gave her a reading during the interview. And she's like, oh, my God, this one was amazing. She even knew which pronouns to use because she was gay, right? So I was like, okay, well, I'll listen to her. She predicted, she says, you want to be a writer. And she, I mean, she literally said, and I'm not just, you know, trying to, like, pat myself here, but she literally said, you're going to be like, Maya Angelou. And at the time I thought, wow, this lady is really pushing it to get into my best graces. What about the dude? Where is he? He's like, you become who you're supposed to become. And that's when you'll meet your man. And I think that advice applies to all of us. I think in relationships too often, we apply relationships to a wound like it's some kind of medication. And we have to nurse those wounds first. We can't fill up, you know, the, the distant father, the distant mother, um, with our partners, that's what maybe our first relationships are going through those motions. But you really need to come in loving yourself. Well, I hope, I hope you can find love from someone else. Well, I hope more f- folks will come out to the book fair this weekend and listen for more life, adva- life advice. <laughs> Tanana Reeve, thank you so much for spending the hour with us and uh, bearing our technical difficulties. Oh, thank you. I loved your questions. Great talking to you. Our guest today was Tanana Reeve Doom. She's a novelist who writes in the genre of black horror. She'll be presenting two books at the Miami Book Fair this weekend, including her latest, The Reformatory. And that's Sundown for Tuesday, November 14th. Leslie Obaya Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa, per- Elisa Baena is our producer. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News, and Katie Munoz is our Director of Live Programming. Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's VP of Radio, and our engineer is Richard Ives. And if you like our show, come see us at the Miami Book Fair. I'll be interviewing the great Carl Hyacin on Saturday, November 18th at 1. There's no sundial tomorrow. We're preempted by the Miami uh, Dade County School Board. We're back on Thursday with more book love. I'm Carlos Frias. Good vibes only.